Hello, and welcome to UK Life Abroad. My name is Andre, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Yusten, Nathan, and Alexa. The recent escalation in Russian military presence has left both Ukraine and Western powers concerned about Putin's intentions. This week, we discuss these developments as well as Russia's forcible seizure of land in Crimea. This and more on Zakhardonyu Ukrainsi, the podcast for all things Ukrainian. Recently, tensions have been rising on the border with Ukraine and Russia, as Russia has been escalating its military presence on the border. So far, Russia has deployed 41,000 troops to the border near Donbass and 42,000 troops to Crimea. And additionally, mobile phone footage has been um, released showing convoys of armoured vehicles travelling to the border, as well as trains covering massive amounts of tanks as well heading in that direction by rail. Now, this isn't just alarmed Ukraina, but it's also alarmed NATO as well. So, Ukraina's foreign minister, uh, Dmitry Kulaba, met with the US Secretary of State and the and NATO's General Secretary in Brussels, where they discussed uh, Russia. And after this meeting, the General Secretary, Jens Stolenberg, uh, stated that Russia must end this military buildup in and around Ukraine, stop its provocation and de-escalate immediately. He also described this military buildup as unjustified and unexplained. Additionally, Kulaba stated, By gathering today, we tried to avoid the mistake that was made in 2014 when Russia was ready to act swiftly and pursue its military goals in Crimea and Donbass while our Western partners were considering their reactions. Russia will not be able to catch anyone by surprise anymore. So significant uh, escalation, not just in uh, military buildup, but also in rhetoric as well, that's been happening over the last few days. So what do you guys think about this and what do you think the reason is? Well, I think we should remember that Russia's escalation isn't new. Like this conflict in Donbass has been going for over seven years and um, April 6th was the anniversary of when Russia started its invasion of Ukraine via Donbass, but even like the month before they just annexed Crimea. And like we should highlight that this conflict has cost um, both sides over 13,000 in total. And there's over 1.4 million Ukrainians who are internally displaced within Ukraine and another uh, one million Ukrainians that have fled abroad, mainly to Russia and Belarus. So it's quite a large conflict in the grand scheme of things. And in addition to the 100,000 troops that Russia has deployed along Ukraine's border, there's another 50,000 plus sitting in the occupied territory of Donbass. So I think one of the... I actually have two opinions about why they do this or like why they're building up these troops. And the first one is for Russia to actually uh, for Putin to get a popularity boost like he did for Krem and just by accusing Ukraine and pretending to uh, bring a, uh, be a threat uh, could actually produce this boost in his uh, parliamentary elections coming up in September. But then I think the other thing is, is that it's also a way to try and force Ukraine to come to terms with Russia's peace plan, really, and being like, 
I want you to do this and trying to force Ukraine to accept them. That's what I think. Yeah, I agree with you, Andre. I think the the idea around uh, the link to his popularity and popularity and Kremlin propaganda with the whole war effort or you know mobilizing for war on the border is very important to him for that side of things. I also think it's probably a very calculated distraction to try and make the Russian media forget about Alexei Navalny being imprisoned um, and try and avoid that movement that's looked still swelling for his support. Uh, to be released and for obviously for free and fair elections to be taking place in Russia. So I think the timing is interesting considering, you know, there's also some counter video um, of his treatment in the, in the prison recently. Um, so I think there's, there's that aspect to it too. Uh, the other thing that's obviously changed in, since the last few years of the status quo is a less favorable um, US president towards Putin and Russia by having Joe Biden in the seat. And I'm no doubt that this particular activity is probably testing the resolve of the Biden administration and what, you know, what position and what lines will be drawn in terms of when they will act and when they won't. Um, and obviously to also see what NATO does, which obviously has come out quite prolifically recently to uh, during this crisis or during this build up to say we are fully behind supporting Ukrainian um, sovereignty and things like that. So I think there, this is a bit of a testing out of the new regime and whether America, America's standing in the world order has been, you know, um, I guess, restored or retained after four years of probably a, the biggest disruption it's had in 70 years. Um, and then to go down, I'm not a history expert, but the other thing that I think is worth considering about this is that not everything that happens in Ukraine and in Russia happens in uh, you know, in isolation, you know, um, that this could also be seen as an opportunity to be ready to mobilize and ready to invade. Because if you're looking at the South China Sea, and in particular Taiwan, China is being increasingly aggressive on the front of invading or securing their islands in South China Sea, which they've been doing for a long time. But then also they've been quite heavily considering, um, you know, testing the defences of Taiwan and you know, have made an open statement for some time that they're prepared to take Taiwan back as part of, you know, by force. And I think while the, the history there is slightly different, the reality is, I think, if you consider something like, you know, China invading Taiwan, if that happens and... Putin makes a move on Ukraine, would you see, you know, would one of them get away with it while the other one doesn't? Because, you know, no no country, even as big as the US, is necessarily going to want to go to two proxy wars in two different regions at the same time. Um, so who knows if that's also playing a bit of a calculus in it. That's actually a good point because um, I was um, reading up on Russia's escalation. They're not only escalating in Ukraine, they've actually been escalating in the Arctic as well. So there was a story um, done by CNN where they were talking about how Russia has been building up facilities. For example, they've built a new radar facility near the border near Alaska. They've built up new airstrips up in the Arctic and as well as a testing facility near Finland where they plan to test a nuclear torpedo, which apparently has the capability of creating uh, tsunamis with radioactive waste. So that altogether kind of makes me think it is more of a, it's maybe not just focused on Ukraine, obviously Ukraine is one of their main focuses, but it's not solely based just on wanting Ukraine back, but this, uh, but more of a, a nationwide uh, strengthening of their military power all over the, their borders, especially like the one with Alaska with the, with the US. 
Um, but what's actually kind of a little worrying, Andrea, you were mentioning that Biden was had planned to send two US warships into the Black Sea, but they haven't shown up. Yeah, and I think that's a detriment to Ukraine in that there was like, I can't remember if it was confirmed or not beforehand, but there was like released um, information about them coming into the Black Sea in protest pretty much to Russia's build up uh, on Eastern Ukraine. And for them not to actually be coming anymore is actually kind of a disappointment to Ukraine really because it it doesn't really show how um, how much support they really have from the West. So I don't know if if doing such a thing was uh, like a good idea really of like saying that you will do it but then not actually doing it. But I think we can see like from like Ukraine's perspective like they have like President Zelensky hasn't back down as some people would think he would have and he's um you know the army is mobilized he said and he visited the front lines in the trenches too. yeah and he took like a cnn journalist and other journalists to the trenches and like there's some footage of like a cnn journalist running after him as they run between like the trenches and that i'm was like pretty awesome actually when i saw that i was like that's a president right there <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's just hope the trenches weren't just in the back of kiev outskirts or something. <laughs> True. um but the first four months of 2021 have been quite deadly for Ukrainian troops. And since the start of the year, 27 soldiers have died, which is more than half of the amount that died in all of 2020. So it's been a much more deadly year on the front line. And I think the sooner President Zelensky admits that the ceasefire with Putin is dead, that I think Ukraine's troops can go back to being more act- like responding quicker to separatist attacks because at the moment they are kind of not haphazard in their responses but they have to get more approval because of like them trying to maintain the ceasefire one of the other things i think we need to consider is that ultimately this war has been going on for a good period of time the economic sanctions whether they were enough to start with whether physical security actions are required under the Obama administration to keep Russia in check. We can argue that later. But the economic sanctions have continued and been enforced consistently and have probably or have waned significantly, have affected the Russian economy significantly. And as we all know um, from other episodes where we've talked about it, the Kremlin and Putin's regime generally has a lot of ties with oligarchy and money and things like that. So obviously there's always pressure politically in his circles around that. So I think it's important not to just accept that this could just be an escalation because the status quo has not changed in their favour. They're still stuck in this war. It's been seven, going on eight years. Um, you know, if, if they need to actually come to some sort of conclusion um, and perhaps, you know, in light of what's happened in the world in terms of the coronavirus disruption, what could still happen economically, financially around the world, could make the balancing act of staying in the international community versus solving this once and for all in terms of Russia's perspective might be a, a balance that they're considering now because of all those different things that are happening on the global stage. Yeah, um, and I definitely know Zelensky's um, picked up his rhetoric as well when it comes to the US. So he said that what uh, Ukraine really needs is more assistance from Washington, more weapons, more money, and crucially, more backing to join NATO. Supportive words from President Biden are no longer enough. S- I think that's a really good quote from Zelensky because it shows that I think mean, he's realized that the West 
is not giving its hundred percent really because we can look at the international community and see that they're mainly providing all these like they condemn the actions they uh like wholly supportive of ukraine all those quotes from political leaders across the eu and the west but i think ukrainians don't really see enough of this attention being brought to ukraine and more effort is required for ukraine to actually start viewing it as something more positive so would you say like a presidential visit from Biden would be a stronger show of commitment or just more forms of lethal aid um, would be needed? I think there's a couple steps that the West can really do. For example, like coming to actually visit, uh, like you said, but then also um, providing lethal aid. But then Lithuania, I'm pretty sure they've even um, suggested to NATO for, to fast track um Ukraine's application into joining NATO. Yeah, and that's what Ukraine's foreign minister, uh, Kulaba, that's what he wanted as well, to fast track um, their acceptance into NATO. And that's why he said he wants more backing from the US to, to join NATO. And I know, Alexi, you said that NATO won't take... Um, well, I feel they're unlikely to accept like Ukraine or even Georgia into the alliance just because we both have active conflicts with Russia. Like you saw like even with like Macedonia... Like, they refused to, like, even consider them for membership because they had the dispute with Greece over their name. So, like, I feel... And that's not even, like, a huge, like, inconvenience, really. But well, that completely stopped their application. Well, if they could name. come to a negotiation, like I know you said before, Alexa, before we're recording, if they could come to a negotiation where they can call in support outside of those territorial disputes. So, like, if there's an escalation in Crimea because that was a previously disputed territory or there was an active conflict, uh, it was an, there was an annexation there, sorry, um, that would no longer be a legitimate call for the rest of NATO. But, for example, if Russia in the future tried to launch an attack from Crimea into mainland Ukraine, well, then they could call in NATO support from there. But I think just having them in the alliance, even if there are those concessions, is a is an essential thing because it kind of puts Russia to force them to take a step back and actually rethink their strategy. I think the other part of that, which you've just sort of gone through, Nathan, is that the European question or the NATO question or just generally the European Union is very important. It's one thing to reach out to the US, but unfortunately it's a double-edged sword. By, by Zelensky being so strong, which I think he has to be around US support, it feels it feels the narrative that the Kremlin's trying to spew that this is actually a proxy war of the old Soviet U.S. style, where Russia's on one side and the uh, U.S., the capitalist side, is trying to have a proxy war with Ukraine. And it's Ukrainian independence or the desire for Ukrainian independence and this idea of Ukrainian culture is just a fabrication. It's just part of a desire of the U.S. to prop up another country against Russia. Um, of course, none of us here believe that kind of thing, but that's the kind of, I guess, that, you know, having that kind of reach out towards the U.S. and only really having the reach out to the U.S. be so strong is is dangerous because I think at the end of the day, Europe, the European Union is the regional power where we're talking. <laughs> the EU is literally the one that's affected the most by the, what's happening in Ukraine. And I think, unfortunately, they have kind of sat a little bit, said all the right things, but not done a lot beyond that, I think is the fair way to describe their activity up until now. Um, and NATO membership would be really important from that side as well. 
Um, and yeah, so I think that's. But it's like um, Ukraine's ambassador to Australia, Dr. Mikola Kulinic, said in our recent interview with him. I feel like um, for the EU, it's a lot harder because they have to balance like their relationship with Ukraine and also their relationship with Russia. And like, yes, they can hit Russia with sanctions, but not all their members are as strong in their support. Because you look at the Baltic countries and you look at Eastern Europe that are uh, the ones that are part of the EU and they're fully supporting Ukraine um, into preventing Russia's uh, encroachment, right? But then the further west you start looking, you see not the same sort of level of uh, attitude to Russia. Because you can consider France and Poland and they have completely different views on the way Russians really act. I think this is a very important important critical issue for the European Union, though. The European Union, the idea of uniting all these countries as one under one currency with a centralised government and still having, obviously, their own governments too, was this idea that they would become another superpower and a kind of a, a new map forward for Europe. Without having, uh, without having the security of or the guarantee of sovereignty of the nations in Europe is quite dangerous for Europe in itself. I mean, you, the European powers were you know, also part of, you know, the Soviet Union collapsed and then the guarantees that were made to Ukraine around sovereignty between you know, the UK, um, Russia and the US. All those things that have happened, I mean, basically it shows that, you know, one could argue that obviously everyone's very weary to support uh, the sovereignty of a country in a territorial dispute under the the treaty obligation to defend because obviously we've seen it happen and World War II started for that very reason because of Poland in some ways. You know, the requirement to protect Poland is what set the world into that motion. But equally, the whole point of the EU, the whole point of NATO, was to bring these countries into a, a cooperative state that, that makes it impossible or nearly impossible for another conflict to start because of disputed territory in Europe. And unfortunately, as much as I think, yes, the US is responsible, I think the UK, that's no longer part of the EU, and the EU also have a really, really important responsibility that they're kind of avoiding or looking to the world policeman being the US as much as they complain about the world policeman being only the US to kind of solve the problem for them. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of deferment to America. And I feel like... I feel like France and Germany feel like they're involved enough with Norman, like the Normandy format, but that's stalled. Uh, Minsk has stalled, like nothing's happening there. And I feel like they're kind of like, well, this is too hard, let America deal with it. But I think they need to stand up and kind of support Ukraine a bit more actively. But I was going to say Turkey's the second largest like country in NATO. And yet uh, people still defer largely. I know US is the largest, but they still defer to the US when I'm sure Turkey being one, it's closer and two, it's larger in terms of uh, its military capabilities than a lot of these other EU countries, I'm sure it could offer some support as well. But you got to remember Turkey has a really awkward relationship with the rest of NATO because like they bought missiles from America uh, from Russia yeah, and that. then America sanctioned them. Yeah. So they're in an interesting position because I think they want to pursue their own foreign policy. But then again, because they're in NATO, they know that no one's going to touch them because they have the protection of America, which is... And I'm sure the idea of buffer countries like Georgia and Ukraine between Russia and the missiles, you know, stationed in Poland and other places 
is tempting to keep from a European Union perspective. But I think it has to be reminded to them and, and Ukrainian diplomats need to do their best to remind Europe that that's only going to lead to longer term complications and problems. Um, and the sooner that they, you know, I think enforce the sovereignty and support the democracy, I think it would be better for every country, including potentially Russia's path may, may even change that pivot over time. Yeah, and Ukraine tried to be a neutral country in the 2000s and it didn't really work out to them. Like we nearly went to war with Russia in the early 2000s over Kerch. Like that was avoided, but I think it only, you know, postponed the inevitable in a sense. But one could also argue that, I mean, without the, without the pull of the KGB or the FSB and the ties that existed under the Yanukovych administration, I mean, there, there, there was a level of exercising of power from the Kremlin in terms of Ukrainian foreign affairs and domestic affairs in the same way that Belarus is probably still pressured under and in a way Georgia was before they were in a conflict. So I think, yes, you can talk about independence being 20, uh, 30 years, I guess, but at the same time, um, you know, that, in, that the independence, the true independence has probably come Seven progressively years ago. over time um, with, with every single watershed with every revolution that's happened and, and every, you know, combined protest of the Ukrainian people. Recently, as part of our short news series, we highlighted a story from Russia where Putin signed a decree banning foreigners from owning land in coastal regions. And this seriously affected occupied Crimea as the majority of its um, counties or regions are coastal. And I think, Andrea, you were saying before the recording, out of Crimea's 25 regions... 18 are affected? Uh, 19. And the band also includes all the districts in Sevastopol as well. So, yeah. And this has affected thousands of Ukrainians who own land in Crimea and, you know, have fled the peninsula or have been, uh, have refused to take Russian citizenship because under the rules, um, if land is owned by a foreigner in these regions, it can be appropriated by the Russian state and sold off and used to fund Russia's army or whatever they choose to use the money on. So do you think this is another attempt to, you know, sever links between Crimea and Ukraine? Yeah, I feel like I'm going to sound like a broken record, but (laughs) (laughs) this is going to be another one of those things that is going to be really hard to undo um, when Crimea goes back to Ukraine. So I know we've talked about language and you have kids that are going to be struggling to um, speak Ukrainian given they've been taught everything in Russian but now you're going to have a situation where you have uh, citizens of like Ukrainsky citizens that no longer have land and have probably even be forced to move or eventually you'll have Russian citizens that will say you know I'm a Russian citizen and my I've uh, ha- had this land for however many years so technically it's my land now and it's going to completely mess up all well, not all, but it's another path to messing up any reintegration of Crimea back into Ukraine. Oh, like, and this, like, with Russia's whole plan on passportization uh, in Crimea, it's another thing, like you mentioned, that Ukraine has to deal with getting rid of all these illegally issued passports as well. Do you think potent- a potential solution is 
what um, some of the Baltic countries have done, which is um, like anyone that arrived to their country after a certain date, they weren't automatically given citizenship when they regained independence. They were instead given um, permanent residency passports. So they were allowed to maintain like their ownership in those countries. However, they were barred from voting or running from office and to obtain citizenship. They had to pass like strict criteria of like learning the language, learning the history. And like it was basically like reacquiring citizenship. True. But I get the feeling, in my opinion, that's going to be really difficult because out of the amount of people who will want Ukrainian citizenship, you won't get a lot of them because a lot of them will say, no, I'm, I have Russian citizenship and I don't want to go for Ukrainian citizenship. So there has to be more, I don't want to say more of a forced effort, but there has to be actual policy changes once uh, Crimea goes back to actually transition Crimea and the people there back into identifying themselves as Ukrainian. And it's going to be really hard because, it's, I mean, we're talking 2014 when this annexation happened and people or a massive amount of people were still considering themselves Russian since the fall of the Soviet Union. So, yeah, it's just going to be really difficult. And I know it, I, I say education's one one path, but there's going to be other ones as well like, you know, strengthening business ties with Ukraine as opposed to Russia, which is going to be difficult now that they have that bridge, so. Yeah, and, like, the whole other issue is that... Um, yeah, I feel like I get really depressed talking about Crimea because... Well, because, yeah, they've fully integrated Crimea into Russia, yeah. while at least in the separatist republic, like, legally Russia doesn't recognize them, even though they support them financially, politically, and all that. Yeah, I know, but just with Crimea, all the actions that they're taking place, I, I'm just thinking, like, afterwards, it's going to be a nightmare afterwards, trying to get everything back, not so much just ending the annexation, but the aftermath is going to be really difficult, and that's the part of, um, I get really, like, depressed about. Well, it's it's hard to even think, how would you possibly have a Black Sea fleet from Russia sitting at Sevastopol after you, uh, you take Crimea back. How does that even work? Oh, I'd say- Do you return a lease agreement? Like, it can't possibly, <laughs> right? Like, so that's why I think, yeah, strategically, Crimea was important for different reasons. You know, politically, Donbass is something that Russia's interested in, but strategically, Crimea is very different. And you can see over the period of seven years, as tragic as it is, you're right, Nathan, they've done a lot more to solidify and make it permanent in Crimea yeah. as much as none of us want to see that happen. And I think there still should be, Ukraine needs to keep fighting to restore it. But yes, there's, the challenge is a lot more complex based on what's there, what in infrastructure and key strategic value there is there for Russia. Do you think the upcoming Crimea platform summit will maybe make some groundwork internationally as to how to deal with the peninsula? Mm. I say that all depends on who rocks up. Well, what happens with this escalation? Because I think that could throw a giant spanner in the works. Given now how, what did I say? There's 40, well, over 40,000 either way. 40,000 or 43,000 troops now in Crimea, Russian troops. Well, I think for the most part, it will be a good initiative because it brings back Crimea into the spotlight. Because I think for a couple of years, it was kind of forgotten and a lot of the issues that were, that Ukraine was dealing with was mainly focusing on Eastern Europe, uh, on Eastern Ukraine. So I think 
even if there is a spanner in the works, I think it's still a step in the right direction. This week in the news. The Nissan Leaf is set to enter the Ukrainian auto market this summer. The Leaf is the most popular electric car in Ukraine. However, it is currently imported by third-party dealers and sold privately. Ukraine's electric car market has seen rapid growth recently. During the last three years, a number of electric cars has quadrupled from 5,600 to 27,300, according to UKR Autoprom. On average, Ukrainians buy 7,200 electric cars a year. The United States has announced new sanctions on Russian entities and officials in response to Russia's role in the 2020 SolarWinds hack, as well as their recent military buildup. The White House stated that these sanctions are aimed to deter Russia's harmful foreign activities. On April 12, 1912, the Ukrainian scouting organization PLUST was founded by Dr. Oleksandr Tusovsky in Lviv. In Ukrainian, a PLUSTUN was the historical name for a Cossack scout or sentry. Since its beginnings in Ukraine, PLUS has now spread around the world with branches from Australia to America. President Zelensky has paid a visit to Turkey where he held numerous meetings with Turkish officials. During the official visit, Ukraine signed a deal where Turkey will build 500 apartments for displaced people in Ukraine. Negotiations also continued on a free trade agreement between the two countries. President Zelensky has submitted a bill to the Verkhovna Rada to disband the Kiev District Administrative Court. The court is one of the most scandal-prone institutions in the entire Ukrainian judicial system. Last year, Ukraine's National Anti-Corruption Bureau charged the head of the court and his deputy with setting up a criminal organization to seize power. Let us know which stories you'd like to hear by reaching out to us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Join us next week for more UKLF broad content.